Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, hey, how we doing, guys? Uh, Apologies in advance. My voice is a little raspy. Got a cold from my son. He's three, so I can't really blame him too much. But anyway... I digress. Let's get to the show. By the way, uh, during the interview, my voice will not be as raspy because uh, it was taped a while ago. And I'm really excited about this interview. I know I say that every week, but I really mean it every week. And in this case, I mean it in an especially powerful and poignant way because Ruth King is among, if not the best person I've ever spoken to about how to address Perhaps the most painful issue in American public life and one of the most painful issues on the planet, which is race. And she just has an incredible way uh, of talking about it and and the role that meditation can play in helping us have successful dialogues. I say this not only as a result of having sat with her to do this interview, but I've spent some time with her personally. And she just has a way about her that just oozes – intelligence and reasonableness, if that's even a word, and compassion. Uh, So she's got a new book called Mindfulness of Race that I recommend. And during the course of this interview, we're going to talk about the fact that she's done racial awareness work with major corporations like Levi Strauss and Intel. So she's really been on the front lines of this for a long time. She's also uh, a longtime meditation teacher. And I ask her straight up, you know, what about some of my fear about addressing this stuff as a as a white man who, you know, has a certain amount of financial and and cultural power? You know, how can I discuss this, you know, without putting my foot in my mouth? And you know, her her answers are, are fascinating and really helpful to me. So all that is coming up. First, though, I just want one quick item of business, and then we'll do your voicemails. Uh, the business is that our guest next week is Oren Sofer who is uh, one of the most popular teachers on our app, the 10% Happier app. And uh, in advance of, of him coming on the show next week, we've put up uh, a couple of new meditations from him on the app. One of them is about uh, a topic that's kind of near and dear to my heart these days, which is self-empathy, which can sound a little gooey, you know, being nice to yourself, blah, blah, blah. But I've learned through my practice recently where I've been getting into a little bit more of this uh, of sort of compassion practices, which... I've talked about it on the show before. They're a little bit annoying, at least at first, but they are, I think, incredibly powerful and will be the subject or the at the core of, of the book I'm working on right now. And so he's got one on self-empathy, which is really just about how to get through tough situations. And I've always been of the view that the way to get through tough situations is to beat the crap out of yourself. It, it turns out um, I've traditionally I've been wrong about that. Uh, so this is a meditation that goes right at that. And that's one of two meditations we'll be posting on the app that are up on the app right now. So check them out and then check out Oren on the show next week. All right, let's do your voicemails. Here's number one. Hey, Dan, this is Scott from Orlando. I'm just curious what you think about the importance of having some sort of a community or someone to bounce your ideas off of uh, as you move forward in your practice and as you're learning. Um, For myself right now, I really am only learning through the podcast and um, a couple of books, uh, yours included. Very good. Um, But I'm just, I do not have a teacher um, and I don't have really anyone else around me that's uh, kind of into this. So I'm just curious what you think about 
um, that importance. Thanks a lot. Love everything you're doing. Bye. Thank you. I, you know, this is a question we've tackled before on the show, so I'll, I'll get through it reasonably quickly because I know that the next question is quite meaty. But yeah, I think teachers are incredibly useful, but not a must. So I spent the first year of my meditation practice just reading books. There, were, there was no podcast that I, that I was aware of. I don't, I don't think I even listened to podcasts at that time. I read a bunch of books and, you know, I went to a few because I'm in New York City, which is such a privilege to be in New York City where you, there are lots of events you can go to where you can hear from teachers. And that was really useful. I was really practicing on my own and it was before, this is 2009, so I think it was before any of the meditation apps were out there. I, I just practicing on my own based on the, you know, the, the basic instructions for mindfulness meditation are pretty simple. And I, I thought it was fine, but but my practice really took off when I went to my first retreat, which again, I, I'm, I, I always talk about retreats gingerly because it's not a must. A lot of you listen to the show are of the view that you don't have the time or maybe even the resources to go on retreat, and that's fine. I really, as as anybody who's listened to the show for any period of time, knows I I think even if you're doing a minute or two most days, then you're getting a lot of the benefits. Um, so I, I don't want to push you or by extension any of the listeners to get more aggressive than you need to be. So it's a very individual decision. But if you're up for it, finding a teacher can be incredibly powerful and really depends on where you live. Do you have access? Most major – Cities now have meditation centers of one flavor or another. Secular centers are are popping up in New York and L.A., Austin, Texas, Miami, Chicago, I believe in Chicago. And then there are more buddhist places, which, again, I don't think you need to be afa- afraid of the Buddhist thing. I think they, they teach really solid meditation techniques in these in these spots, most of them, at least the ones I've been to, and if you don't like the smells and bells of it, if, if, there, are even are, if there even are smells and bells and formal sort of Buddhist ceremonies, you, you can ignore that stuff and just focus in on the uh, on the instruction. But I think the ability to ask questions of an experienced teacher, either one-on-one or raising your hand and asking questions from a crowd, the, the benefits are, are, you know, incalculable. To really be able to run by an individual who spent a lot of time traveling down the various byways of the mind, what you're experiencing, and they'll you know, if they're a good teacher, they're going to recognize it right away and be able to give you a couple of options. So if it's available to you, if there are teachers in your neighborhood or if you find one who's available on Skype, I would say go for it. The other thing uh, I would recommend is if, you, if you're on the app, and I know from the survey work we've done that a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are on, on the 10% Happier app, we have these coaches. Some of the happiest and most frequent users of the, uh, users of the app are the people who talk to our coaches. These people, the coaches, are experienced meditators. They live to answer your question. You can ask them as many questions as you want, free of charge once you're a subscriber. So take advantage of that. And, and these people, this you will be deriving a lot of the benefits of having a teacher by talking to these coaches. Thank you for that question. Let's get on to uh, voicemail number two. Hi, Dan. Thanks for all that you and your team have done in bringing meditation um, and mindfulness to so many people. You've certainly changed this 33-year-old's life. Um, my question is that, uh, well, in one of Joseph Goldstein's guided meditations on fear in the 10% Happier app, which I am a, a happy subscriber, he mentions how important it is to fully accept negative emotions like fear rather than to resist them. And he even tells a uh, personal story about it. In some situations for me, 
this works like a charm, and the negative feeling does seemingly miraculously dissolve, and it's amazing. But in others, my anxiety is so fierce that if I start, quote-unquote, accepting it, it enlarges so much that it almost feels like I'm going to be drowned in it, like completely overwhelmed in my seat and that I might even fall off. And I don't know if I can go through with it. So what I do is I then clamp down once it gets to a certain point. So my question is, have you experienced this before and how do you deal with it? I'm not sure that these types of negative feelings have the chance to go away if I keep clamping down and resist them at a certain point. And maybe the point is I shouldn't try to uh, assume that they'll or want them to ultimately go away, which is Joseph's point, but I'm not sure I can even get to the point of allowing them in because it's just so overwhelming um, and so large. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you. That's a great question. I And um, I've been thinking a lot about this because actually we're, we're making a change in the way we're making a number of changes in the way we handle the voicemail section on this podcast. Uh, the first change we're making is that it, it, heretofore I have not heard the questions in advance. We ran a podcast, we ran a podcast listener survey a few months ago and 500 of you took a lot of time and answered a really detailed questions. I am so grateful for that. One of the pieces of feedback we got was that, um, why aren't you listening to the voicemails in advance so that you can give us more thoughtful answers? Pretty good piece of feedback. So now we're going to be, uh, we're going to, I'm going to be doing that. And I think in the future, we're actually going to be bringing in, because one of the things I was often saying in my, in my answers was, you know, I'm not an expert, but here's, here's my take on it. We're actually in some cases going to bring in experts and pipe in their answers to your questions. So stay tuned for more changes to come. Anyway, so I a long way of saying I've been able to think a little bit about uh, about that question because I knew it was coming. And let me just first talk a little bit about the the guided meditation that she references from Joseph Goldstein. This guided meditation from Joseph is on it's it's called Fear. If you search for it in the app, you can find it. It's excellent. It talks a lot about it, the fact that Joseph, for many years in his life, even after a long time of meditating, was dealing with serious doses of fear, both in his walking around life and in his meditation practice. But he he found that he started to realize that the attitude in his mind toward the difficult emotion of fear was, I will be mindful of you. I will try to note that you're here. But there's this undercurrent of, I want you to go away. He calls this, I don't know if he says this in the meditation, but he calls this often in many of his speeches in order to mind that we think we're being mindful of a difficult emotion. But really, if we look closely, there's this subtle element of aversion We're we're, we're being mindful in order for that, that emotion to go away. And that isn't real acceptance. And I'm not saying this with a wagging finger. Acceptance is hard. And this is a skill that we are training. And sometimes it's doable, as we heard in that excellent question, sometimes it is doable. Sometimes we, you know, uh, uh, a, an emotion arises and we are able to summon some mindfulness. We're okay uh, with, the feel, with the feeling and it does have a way of going away or we just become okay with it and, and that being okay with it, it changes the nature and the force, the valence of the emotion. However, there are times in my experience where 
it's just too strong. If you have an anxiety disorder, in my case, I have panic disorder. I'm not of the view that I can meditate my way out of panic, that I can sit and just allow. I am not a good enough meditator yet to watch panic arise and pass. With I, I can't do it. But that that is, you know, I'm I'm we're, I am, and we are all training this skill. And so over time, I would argue you will get better at allowing this intense anxiety to just be there. But you're think about how far you've come that you're able at times now at age 33, I don't know how long you've been meditating, to um, see sometimes the anxiety arise and to say, oh, yeah, I see it. Here it is. I'm okay with it. And that it can sometimes dissipate or you can just be okay with it and not be paralyzed by it. That's a huge achievement that sometimes it is too strong for you. I don't know what you mean by clamping down in order to stop it, but that sometimes it's too strong for you. I guess my opinion is, is that's okay. And you're just going to get better and better over time at, at this skill of true mindfulness, which has an aspect of uh, acceptance. So I would say bravo to you and keep doing the work. And I would I would really be interested to hear, and this is an improvement we're going to make over time, as I said in our voicemail section of the show, I would be interested to hear what somebody like Joseph or uh, a meditation with teacher would say about exactly what to do in the moment where it's too strong. But personally, I'll tell you what I would do, uh, which is if I was experiencing, sometimes for me, restlessness is the thing that I you know, I can sit with it. You know, I, the body, the physical discomfort of restlessness. I can sit with it for a certain period of time, but after a while, I have to stand up. I just, I, I reach my breaking point. And I've talked about this with Joseph, and he's just, he's, his has, and he's talked about this too with physical pain with me. You know, sometimes you experiencing physical discomfort unrelated to uh, to restlessness or restlessness that produces a kind of physical discomfort. And he says that you know we're training the ability to sit with this. You want to test your edge here, but at some point it's too much. And it's okay to stand up and, for, in my case, I will me- I'll continue the session of meditation while standing up. And so over time, I'm just continuously, I hope, getting better at accepting and being with these difficult sensations. But, you know, at a certain point, it's just too much. So that's my advice. My, my overall advice is, is like, or my overall response is, you're doing a great job. Keep at it, and you will improve. Continue to improve over time. I do want to say one other thing, and I know I'm giving a long answer to this, but you know, I've been um, doing. I'm, I'm really, really quite deep now in 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 the research into my next book, tentatively entitled "10 Percent Nicer." Although I don't know if that's what the title will be, but it's really about kindness. And um, I've been doing a lot of. Uh, Metta, M-E-T-T-A, meditation, loving kindness meditation. And I was on a retreat recently with the teacher Spring Washam, who's been on this show twice and is incredible. We did a one-on-one loving kindness retreat. And I had a lot of really powerful insights during the course of that retreat. And one of them is, is directly germane to this discussion about acceptance. What I found was that I, I the, to, for me, a lot of the difficult emotions I deal with during meditation are restlessness and impatience. I just, I, I just don't want to be doing the meditation, and when I'm on retreat, I don't want to be on the retreat. And 
I I had never actually been fully mindful of that before. And what was interesting about do about seeing these difficult emotions arise within the context of metta or loving kindness, which is often I think better translated as friendliness, this kind of meditation where you're cultivating friendliness. Um, just as a brief aside, the technique here, as many of you will know this, but for those of you who don't, the technique here is you are systematically envisioning people, including yourself, and and repeating phrases of well-wishing. So, so um, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you live with ease, et cetera, et cetera. And so you're doing this really annoying practice, but over time, it's that you actually start to generate this feeling of friendliness. And within the once you've created this kind of container of mental friendliness, once these difficult emotions arise, in my case, restlessness, sometimes anger, frustration, all, uh, first of all, I'm more mindful. I'm seeing it because the mind is tuned up, and I'm actually accepting it with some friendliness. And this, to me, was a – I mean, meditation teachers talk about this all the time, that it's not just enough to note with some non-judgmental remove – Whatever, uh, med- uh, whatever emotion or sensation you're experiencing, but to do so with some friendliness and warmth. Well, I always ignored the latter part of that instruction because I didn't really know what it meant. But on this retreat where the mind is flooded with this friendliness, I realized, oh, yeah, actually I can have some warmth. It doesn't mean I'm psyched that I'm feeling so restless I want to run away, but I can see it as with some – I can you know blow it a kiss. So that has made a big difference for me in terms of accepting all of the difficult emotions and physical sensations that arrive arise inevitably in any meditation practice. So I've said a lot. Um, I hope it was useful. Let me get now to somebody who really knows what she's talking about, Ruth King, our guest this week. I said a bit about her at the beginning. She is, uh, just as a reminder, uh, a longtime teacher in the insight meditation tradition. She's written a couple of books on the issue of race. The newest one's called Mindful, Mindful of Race, um, she also wrote a book about rage, which is uh, a powerful emotion that arises for many people in uh, in discussions of race. Um, and so she is going to um, she's going to drop a lot of knowledge on us in in this podcast. I'm really grateful to to her for coming on. So here she is, Ruth King. Great to see you. Yeah. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much. Yeah. So uh, as uh, I warned you in advance, I'm going to ask this question. How did you get into the meditation game? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, it, it's, it's a, I'll, I'll make this story brief because it's really rich. I was in China. Well, let me just say, don't make it brief. <laughs> this, is, this is a podcast. You can, All right. Brevity is not rewarded here. Okay, good. That's even better. So I, I'm in China at the Beijing Women's Conference back in the late 80s, early 90s. I can't remember the year. When you were seven years old. I wasn't seven, but I was a well, a, well an, an adult. And um, I, I went to that conference and did a, a training on generational healing and met a woman when I was there uh, who we were both black women staring at this five-story golden Buddha with tears kind of running down our eyes for no apparent reason. And she turns to me and she says, um, do you meditate? And I said, well, kind of. And she says, where do you live? And, of course, in China, I, I, I said, well, I live in the Bay Area. And only people in the Bay Area would say they live in the Bay Area in China, assuming everybody knows where that is. <laughs> but she said, so do I. And so um, 
So as it turns out, she was on the board of Spirit Rock, and she said, I want you to come and join me. I want you to be with me. I need you there. And I said, well, she's talking about diversity. Tell us what Spirit Rock is. Spirit Rock Meditation Community in Woodacre, California, which is Northern California. And so, I, and I was living in Berkeley, and which is across the bay. And I said, you know, I'm just not feeling like I'm up for all this diversity stuff again. I've kind of been there, done that. She wanted me to join the diversity council there and just support the awakening that was starting to happen there. And but I went to a meditation uh, class with her, with her teacher Jack Cornfield, on a Monday night, just crowded room, uh, and um, I fell in love with. Jack Cornfield, basically. He offered a teaching that evening where he started off saying, uh, Oh, nobly born, uh, remember who you are. Be willing to know for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Know for yourself. And there was something about that message that I think I had been looking for in a spiritual practice that made my heart just crack wide open because I... I wanted to know for myself. I didn't want to just trust somebody blindly and hear the good faith message without it being an embodied kind of um, spirituality. So there was something about that that kind of cracked me open, had me relax, had me believing uh, that there was something more I could do to um, attend to my distress, which I was basically just grinning and bearing and you know, having positive thoughts, but really struggling on the inside. So Spirit Rock Meditation Community became my sangha, my community where I practice. And um, I, I've been there ever since. Let's just go into that the, the know for yourself mm-hmm. part of it, because I think that is the, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm mangling the Buddhist words here, but something around along the lines of yeah. knowing for yourself. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Because I, I think there is, one of the biggest, Reason, one of the reasons why people are attracted to Buddhism, I'll speak for myself at least, mm-hmm. is that it isn't somebody telling you, hey, you got to accept my dogma. That's it's right. basically like hey, the, the Buddha himself said this, which was, hey, look, I'm going to make some metaphysical claims. You can take them or leave them. That's right. But uh, just try out this meditation thing. If it works for you, then you can keep doing it. That's right. And, you know, it's um, – Coming from uh, being raised in a Baptist church where church was really where the community lived, you know, I don't know if I saw everybody practicing the faith, but it was where the community hung out. It was where you took care of Sarah and her family who had the drug problem or the fathers who got laid off work. We, you know, there was all this sense of community. Uh, and it wasn't so much about the teachings of the Bible as much as it was about community. And uh, and so there was a lot around faith, believe in God, put your faith in God, which is nothing wrong with it. I, the A good friend of mine says, um, the Lord is, is, Jesus is my Lord and personal Savior, but the Buddha left instructions. <laughs> I think there was something about the instructions of how to embody faith, how to know for yourself, how to relax into um, the experiences, the moments, the, com- the 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 accumulation of moments, where you get a taste, a potent homeopathic drop of uh, freedom and release that really carries you to a to a place of really knowing what you're capable of um, letting go of. 
So that was really powerful for me, those moments that have accumulated over the years where there's faith in what I'm capable of understanding in my mind that supports freedom, not freedom as a destination, not freedom as heaven, but freedom each moment when I can let go of some entrenched stronghold on my heart and mind that interferes with me seeing clearly and um, opening to to what's here right now. You mentioned your childhood going to church. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in South Central Los Angeles in the heat of the civil rights movement and black power movements of that time. My family was very active in the civil rights movement, uh, primarily the NAACP, the Urban League. And uh, we all uh, watched uh, and was involved kind of peripherally in in that um, very potent time. And so I grew up in South Central Los Angeles and, you know, in Watts. And um, there was, the church was big, but jazz was also big, as well as the civil rights movement. So there was this interesting blend of, again, improvisational jazz was a big part of growing up, where uh, we had these jam sessions at home, and my mother played the piano, so all the other instruments had to come to our house. And I think what I saw was this palpable, deep listening attuning, creating um, stream that was running through uh, all of the struggles of civil rights and all of the despair that we saw in communities with struggling families. There was jazz. There was improvisational jazz. So there was a richness in um, listening and attuning to the collective, which is what jazz does. And uh, so that was a beautiful stream that was running as well. It was really... Uh, sense of creativity and connection and listening and creating something together that you couldn't possibly do by yourself. So, so that's a big influence in my life is uh, of ra- being raised in well, South Central. Let me go back to the Golden Buddha for a moment. Yeah. When you're standing in, in yeah. where were you in China? And we're in yeah. You're looking at a Golden Buddha in two, Beijing. Two questions about that. One is why were you crying? And two. When when your new friend said, I, I need you to join me on the board because, um, you know, I'm, I'm assuming she was saying I'm one of the few, if not the yeah. only African-Americans yeah. on here and it's exactly. mostly white. And you said, I don't want to do that because I've already I've already I don't want to do more of this diversity stuff. Yeah. So you could answer those in whatever order you want. But I'm <laughs> curious about both of those things. Well, the um, the the tears, I think, um, for both of us, she's since passed away. Uh, Dr. Marlene Schoonover-Jones, who was uh, very big in um, trying to bring more diversity and racial awareness to the Buddhist communities. Uh, so so I, you know, bows to her for that. But I think we were both in tears because of the, the um, just the, the majesty of this statue. It, it, it was huge. It was golden. A lot of the imagery of the Buddha is this sense of um, stillness, um, uh, equanimity, uh, quietude, you know. And I think there's just a hunger and longing. For, there's a recognition that this is something deeply, uh, this is the thirst to a large extent that we have, and yet it was so palpable. I mean, I, I think for me, I could see myself. I've had dreams of sitting 
and being that in that still posture way before I even knew what Buddhism was. So there was a recognition, and I think along with it was an offer, an offer of um, something that you could do. You could sit. You could you could be serene. You know, this is touchable, tasteable. That was my experience, and and just just being. Um, so relieved in a way to see that and to be touched by something so simple yet so profound. And your reluctance? Well, well, my reluctance is my whole career, my professional career was in corporations doing diversity training and leadership development programs and coaching leaders on, you know, how to wake up to the power and group dynamics and diversity um, the the skeletal shape of uh, you know power dynamics that happens inside of corporations, the obliviousness around issues of race and our intent and impact. So I did that work for many many years, and I was just retiring from it. I was just around that time leaving Intel Corporation and Levi Strauss, where I did quite a bit of work, and deciding to pursue more of a stillness practice. I w- I wasn't even sure what it was at the time. But I knew I was done with this this grind of pushing against the system and efforting and trying to get people to wake up that really weren't that is- interested really around these issues. But I was uh, I was interested in it, uh, but interested in addressing it in a different way. There had to be, in my mind, a way of addressing this kind of internal struggle without efforting so much without burning out. Too many people I knew had died early, diabetes, had all these, you know, these worrying warrior black people that I knew and other races as well, people of color primarily, who were just um, dying way too young from stress and and uh, rage. And, um, and it just was not going to be my life. I just decided it was not going to be my life. So when I met... Dr. Uh, Jones, who was inviting me to come back into kind of addressing some of the institutional things, is like, I've been there, I've done that. I don't want to do that. I ended up doing that anyway. <laughs> and, you know. And, and then, by the way, continuing with the corporate work, right? And continuing to some sense with the, with the corporate work, but bringing mindfulness into the corporate work. And so that limited my options, of course, but that was okay because the work was really juicy to work with corporate leaders that were really interested in how to integrate their their habits of mind, the way they think, their conditioning around race and diversity to kind of wake up with that, to that right in the middle of corporations. But I was, um, yeah, so I, I don't do a lot of corporate work anymore, but I do work with a lot of teams and organizations and groups that want to deepen their relationship with uh, race, their racial conditioning, want to unpack it, examine it closely to really see what their, uh, you know, thread is in this tapestry of racial tension that just keeps being a repetitive motion injury in our social system. So would you, would it be fair to say that your that the introduction of meditation into this work of diversity revolutionized the work for you? I think it did for me personally. I, I I totally think it was kind of a real deal changer for me. 
How so? Well, I think mainly um, because it's that know for yourself piece. Uh, it it uh, but the other piece for me was uh, really recognizing the impact that my actions had on collective well-being. Uh, it it wasn't enough for me to be right and rageful because I was planting seeds with all of my actions. There was something about uh, knowing that uh, my drop from my energy and effort and pointing things out. Uh, when it was twinged in hate and righteousness, uh, I was planting more seeds of that. And there was something disturbing about that on the inside that it was just, you know, doing harm just was no longer an option uh, in me. I got in touch with just how uh, how um, how much I was hurting, too, in, in the in the ways that I was so righteous and angry about what I was seeing. I mean, I was really good at pointing these things out. I was trained well, and I was right, but there was a way I was dead right. I was dead on the inside. I was shut down. You know, when you're when you're so right about something, you know, when you're so fixated on it, then something's always left out of view. <laughs> you know, you, you can't have a tight focus like that without shutting something out. And because I had open heart surgery at the age of 27 from a mitral valve prolapse, which I think was related to how I had been living my life up to that point and a lot of stress, a lot of rage, a lot of anger, um, there was just something about um, the the heart has always been integral in my life. You know, I was tenderhearted growing up. I was crybaby, you know, I, I was uh, very sensitive as a child and um, highly controlled in my family. There were eight of us, so there's a lot of high control. And, um, and I had to silence myself for a number of years. And there's a lot of violence, both inside the family and outside in the community around us. So there was a ways I had to silence my uh, rage in order to survive. And then when I became of age or an adult, I started raging all over the place. So I just feel like that just accelerated a certain kind of uh, chemistry inside my heart and mind that just just put my heart at risk. And um, it was enlarged and there needed to be surgery. And then there was the recovery, which was my first silent retreat where I didn't have any energy to um, defend myself anymore. And there was a, that was a profound experience of um, gentling and softening and um, healing from all of the things I'd been running from, all of the things I was <laughs> not really willing to face, you know. Um, so there's a lot to my upbringing that was also in the mix of uh, knowing I needed to find another way. You know, like I remember my great-grandmother pacing when I was seven years old. She died. She paced a lot and worried a lot. She couldn't uh, help. Uh, she couldn't protect the black bodies in our family that were going to prison and being harassed. And so there was this atmosphere of fear and worry, but not the skills to be able to work uh, gently and bring the heart into the mix of this. And I remember how hard it was that I couldn't comfort her. 
at the age of seven. And when she died, I remember saying, saying to myself, you know, I'm just not going out like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, it was just something about that. It's, I can't do it that way. That, I, I couldn't comfort her. And that was a real moment. And I think she'd be happy to know I'm doing walking meditation these days instead of pacing the floor in worry. <laughs> I really am not worried like I used to be. That's one of the things about meditation. You can kind of look back on your life. And it's usually in, when you, in the practice you can look back and say, oh, I'm not dealing with that like I used to. Oh, I didn't react to that the way I used to. Sometimes it's this retrospection this kind of view of really uh, looking back that helps you see that you're really handling things differently with a bit more um, clarity, with a bit more understanding of your impact, with a a deep wisdom about our belonging and that what we do really matters. We're all in the business of planting seeds. and, um, And we really need to be more conscious about what they are. So it's I'm not so quick to be in righteousness and you know like I used to be because it's deadening. <laughs> you talked about there was just there were many things I want to ask you about from the paragraphs you just uttered, which were all mm. very very interesting. Mm. Violence in the family. Mm-hmm. I don't. If you're comfortable, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah. There's violence in the family. Um, you know, uh, uh, yeah, my mother was a single mom of eight kids. She had been married a number of times, and um, the the kids were in different sets. So the first three kids had a father, the second three had a, another father, and then the last two had different fathers. So it was like the macaws against the Smiths. Which set you were know? you in? I was in the second set. And then the first six kids were one year apart. So really tight, close in age. But my oldest sister ended up having to be responsible for raising us when that's really not the job that she wanted. And so we really felt her wrath around that. She didn't like that job, so uh, she was very hateful um, and really um, angry because she didn't get to really have a life. She wasn't that much older than us and had this saddled responsibility of parenting us. She really wasn't that good at it. She wasn't interested in it, and she hated the job. And so we, f- we felt that, uh, at least, especially the, the, the second set of kids with a different father because there was just a, a struggle between whose dad was loved the most. It was, it was complicated. But um, and my sister just passed away last year, and um, uh, there was a lot of healing that's been done over the years. I, I, I think again, this practice supported me in being able to return to that early imprinting of um, it was violence, but it was mostly fear that I felt and a real terror of um, of of uh, high control and also terror of doing something wrong of 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 um upsetting anyone so it was a really tightly controlled critical environment you know the violence was more of um threats uh, it was a lot of emotional violence you know some physical violence but it was just an atmosphere of um 
of terror, of, of being afraid, being afraid of speaking, of, of, of um, doing something wrong. You know, there was, there, I've, I was raised in that atmosphere. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, and maybe you just answered it, but I'd be curious to hear about the content of the rage you felt suffusing your life mm. in the years before meditation. Was it was it about unexamined, unexplored, uh, compartmentalized rage about the way your childhood went, or was it about the content of structural racism in America? Mm. What, what was it all of it? Well, I, I think it's hard to separate the structural racism out of the equation because of of internalized oppression. Um, you know, I think the uh, a lot of the physical violence that uh, African-American people especially um, display is the result of, of being so violated through generations of slavery and abuse and seeing um, violence as a form of control. So I think that some of the, you know, some of that gets played out in the family setting as a way of controlling your children. I don't think it's necessarily conscious, but I, so it's hard for me to see how to separate structural racism, internalized oppression from the equation of parenting, especially in um, uh, families that struggle with day-to-day means and survivals, families that are, um, you know, don't have, you know, a lot of resources. Um, not we didn't have great educational systems. So there's there's a whole cycle of systemic uh, racism that um, puts a lot of pressure on families, and so that gets played out. That pressure gets released in places where you can control them. I think this also happens in families that have a lot of money, but it, that's a whole another story. So I do think there's that. Um, but I, I, so the rage that I felt was um, primarily about this high control inside my family. I, I think, um, uh, you know, I wasn't as aware of the racism directly uh, as it came to me. I think there was a lot of overprotection in the family. But you were doing this work in corporations where you were pointing out the racism. Yeah, I was doing work, in, but we're talking about my early are you talking about my early? Uh, well, I was just—I was hearkening back to the rage you said you saw the disutility of the rage you wanted to drop, which is what made meditation attractive to you. Hmm. And you said you were—you were right, but dead right, which I think is right such an amazing way to formulate right. it. Yeah. And so I'm just trying to get a sense at that point, the Ruth King of of. Right around the time where you're getting introduced into meditation, which is your late twenties, what was, it was my late thirties? Late thirties, really. sorry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what what was the content of your rage? Was it was it all about your childhood, or was it about the, the racism you were seeing in the well, world? Well, I was think it a mix? yeah, I think it was a mix. And again, these are very gradations here. Um, but I, 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 you know, I was I was so good at my rage that I got a high pain consulting job that afforded me the privilege of pointing it out. You know, so my heat was well utilized inside these corporations because I was good at pointing out what was happening. What was uh, missed in that is my unfinished business, Mm. you know, that was underneath it, that was really feeding it. I wasn't necessarily cleaning my and licking my own wounds around this, but I was real good at pointing out, uh, 
you know, how screwed up you were, white boy, you know, <laughs> because that's kind of what the job was. And there was, a, interestingly enough, uh, there was some real listening of, of the message I had to say. So I felt very um, effective in the work I was doing inside of corporations, despite the rage I had, uh, because I, 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 was, um, I was able to still point out some very obvious messages. But what wasn't happening was me being able to um, adapt to my own um, burning internal uh, destruction that was happening uh, in my own um, approach. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I was um, bypassing the needs I had to heal from being controlled. My my being controlled that hadn't been addressed, it became controlling in the work that I was doing. So it got projected uh, under an oppression, a professional, uh, you know, um, suit wearing kind of uh, experience. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So uh, I wonder specifically how how you approach it differently now because the racism's still there and by the way, worthy of rage. Yeah. So how do you how do you do this work without the rage? Well, um, well, I, th I, th I think if rage can be, uh, I mean, sometimes rage is loaded because it's just dipped in the waters of unfinished business. And, uh, you know, we have to look at the character of the rage because it's energy. You know, it is it is a certain thing that's running through that's alive and 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 real time. So it's not to be ignored. Uh, but I think we need to pay attention to um, its story. I think the story of rage oftentimes belongs to us more than it belongs externally. Um, it's old. It's usually uh, shame-based. 
you know, we need to understand. My first book was on rage, by the way. So it's uh, it was it's been a big teacher in my life, a very big teacher in my life. So, yeah, the rage is still there. But I, I think we become responsible for the impact we have on other people it, through meditation practice. You 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 get tenderized to your impact and to uh, you get really acquainted with your habits of mind and your heart's longing. And you learn, um, I, I often say, how uh, this life is not personal, it's not permanent, it's not perfect, you know. So when I'm in the heat of a moment, I feel like a rage moment, a racist moment, a racism moment. When I turn on the news each night or I'm uh, looking at the um prison industrial complex and how many dark and brown bodies are in it, you know, uh, when I see the the Starbucks and the two guys and the, the four women, black women golfing and the Yale black student napping and the police are called to, to fix the problem because these bodies are so criminalized. I mean, I can still get pretty inflamed about it. But I think I'm more sensitive to um, how that energy gets used and uh, and really choosing where it goes. I don't want to waste energy at this time of my life. I, it's, it's, it's a utility. I don't want to just spew it all over the place indiscriminately. It's very important that I use it to really make a difference. I don't want to talk to people that don't want to listen. You know, I'm not somebody that... Um, would be out there on the front lines of of protests. I like to write books, and I like to deal with people that are going to be able to hear what I have to say and to be able to reflect on it. I'm not somebody that can work in this area in crisis situations, for example. My work is 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 the places we are in before it becomes a crisis so that we can examine how we're responding because it's crucial um, and of course, there's a lot of right, righteous rage out there right now around it. Uh, I think we need the fire. It, it's useful. It gets our attention. Uh, what we do next is what's what's important. What's most important. So let's talk about the new book, Mindful of Race. Mm-hmm. You didn't you didn't accept my title suggestion. My title <laughs> suggestion with your your phraseology. You had used when we had breakfast a couple of years ago. You used this. <laughs> term to describe the nature uh-huh. of your work and you said it's messy at best i said that's your book title well, you didn't listen to me but that's fine i'll take it personally but what i did do dan is it's the last chapter of oh, my it book is. okay and it's on my wristband that says mindful of race not there yet it's not messy at best but it is messy it's so messy that would be a great uh, book title but it's the last chapter Kind of what I le- that's yes. what I leave people with because I'm not trying to say I don't want people thinking that this is going to be solved in our lifetime. This is a life's work. It's deeply ingrained in this culture. There are moments of of beauty that we can learn to recognize even in the thick of it. And there's just stuff we have to do with our heart and mind in order to really turn it around. And I think that a big part of that is. Um, white people especially, really recognizing that they're part of uh, racial group identity. Uh, they are in, in, they are membered in whiteness, and it hasn't been examined. 
And uh, when that, um, when white people come to the table as just good, well-meaning individuals without being rooted in their history and lineage and how that gets played out uh, socially, politically, uh, then I think there's a lot missing in um, our um, potential to really graduate to real human and respectful conversations. So let's unpack that a little bit. So as mm-hmm. I understand it, I'm going to try to restate what you're saying, and you mm-hmm. tell me where I go run afoul of, mm-hmm. of accuracy. Uh, a lot of white people come to the table of racial dialogue mm-hmm. thinking, you know, patting themselves on the on the back a little bit, thinking, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a good white person. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm participating in this. Um, but And they look around the table, and everybody else is in a racial group, and they forget to notice that they, too, are in a racial group. That's right. That's a big piece of it. You know, so so a lot of white people I know, and I do a lot of uh, mindful of race training. That's my primary training that I'm doing now. And a lot of white people come in, uh, you know, well-intended and want to address race, but it's the racial other. It's how do we fix the problem? How do how to tell me what you need? Tell me what I don't need to understand. And I think it's, it infuriates people of color to have to tell white people about whiteness, that, that they're a race, that, that there's a dynamic in our social realm that they're actually kind of oblivious to this thing called whiteness. So um, it is it's such a crucial part of the equation right now that that gets claimed. I was in Charlottesville. I did this training, Mindful of Race, for the Insight Meditation community there. They used this training to bridge separation in the community at large. So they invited a number of people from the, the community to come in and train together, learn together around this this as race. It was all uh, they were. The last meeting I had was with them was in preparation of them getting ready for this alt right kind of rally that took place there in Charlottesville. And I remember after that uh, incident where the woman was killed. Um, uh, the mayor said, you know, these uh, white nationalists and people that come to our city, they just need to, to leave. They need to leave our fair city. And I was thinking, where in the hell are they going to go? Where are they going to go? Where do you think they go? And when white people put them out and disown them, which is, you know, a lot of that is understandable to some extent. They they are somebody's mother, father, sister, brother, you know. So there's, you know, there is um, connection to some extent. When white people disown that kind of charge, people of color end up having to pick up the slack. They end up having to be the one that's addressing the issue, starting the movement, you know, uh, rallying against um, the complexity of the these very deep grooves. So this idea that they need to leave is a piece of uh, you know, they're not me. That's not my people. Uh, is 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 a piece of um, a lineage and history and um, membering that I think is uh, is pro- is problematic. When I when I get white people in a group to talk about whiteness together, they look at each other and scratch their heads. What are we going to talk about? Well, I think it's such an interesting <laughs> point because I don't think when I see people marching with tiki torches in. Charlottesville, I deplore it, obviously, but I don't think, oh, there's a problem with my people. We need to address it. Whereas, just as a rough analogy, after 9-11, there was a lot of talk about the onus being on moderate Muslims 
to deal with radical Muslims, violent Muslims, because there was a problem with those people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. It it really speaks to the fact that there we we white people don't often see. I put myself in this category. I'm just learning about this now. Uh, Don't really think of ourselves as a group of people. We kind of think of ourselves as like the mainstream and everybody else is part of a group of people. Yeah. That's that to me is a real uh, missed opportunity, you know, because we're all individuals who've suffered and had our lives and our stories and our traumas and had to do these dances with our parents in order to get approval and to stay loved. And but we're also part of racial group identities. And that that's a collective experience that, uh, you know, that people have as a race. And um, and then all races are not created equal. There's a dominant and subordinated group dynamic around race in our in our country. This is a relative reality that we live in. It's not ultimate reality. It's a relative fact. Well, some people might know not know the difference between relative and <laughs> yeah. ultimate reality. This, yeah. this is a Buddhist concept. It's a Buddhist concept. I I, I think it uh, it's a concept also around. Uh, you know, this idea that um, we all know that we're not a race, that we're, you know, that we're not just simply a race, that we're, we're, we're not defined and, you know, just these concepts that we live with is not totally who we are. We're more than that. But it's the it's concepts and language and and uh, identities are ways that we navigate in our day-to-day life. But we know especially from our from faith traditions and spiritual practices that you know the heart is bigger than all of that the mind is bigger than all of that so uh, when i'm talking about this i'm really talking about that relative day-to-day conceptual way that we navigate our relationships our communities our politics our um and and our love actually you know it's 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 um we're making choices. We're making choices based on how we've been conditioned to believe certain things and fear certain things and naturally kind of open to certain things. So the ultimate reality is that, you know, well, I guess you could use the somewhat controversial and also very cliched term of oneness with the universe. We're all one mm-hmm. that, that you can argue about that, but let's just leave it there for a second. That would be the ultimate truth. Uh, the relative truth is that actually, you know, you are you and you have to put your pants on in the morning and you do have a certain pigmentation and you will be viewed in a certain way and you will view That's others right. in a certain way. That's and, right. And uh, a, a mature spiritual practice deals with both. That's correct. That's well said. Yeah. I try. Yeah, I think you're a teacher. I don't know about that, yeah. especially not on this subject, because I really yeah. feel like I'm at the beginning of a very steep learning yeah, curve. Yeah, and we're all learning. And that's another reality around this. We're in different places with the waking up piece around race and racial harm and injury. You know, uh, I was just uh, talking at the Zen Center. Uh, the New York the Center. New York Center. For, the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. Right. I was doing a talk there and a woman of color uh, raised a question about, you know, how do you deal with um, just the fact that so many of our Buddhist institutions are so so white and so segregated, and how do you work with that? And I, I get so tired of seeing that. And, and I, what I said to her is I said, how can they not be that? 
I mean, you know, you have to look at uh, our conditioning. Most institutions, most organizations uh, that were that are organized by white people does it, it does not take into consideration people of color from the start. It's just not in the consciousness. And what happens when there is no examination of racial group identity or whiteness? Then the same indiv- individualistic mindset, I'm a good person, I'm a good, you know, I'm a good white person even, but it's individual, not collective. That same consciousness rolls itself into the institution, into the organization. Or that same lack of consciousness. Yeah, yeah. And so it, to me, it's not a matter of whether these institutions are, ra- you know, have racism. And how could they not? The, the issue is what do you do about that? What do you do with your privilege? What do you do with this once you wake up to it? And how do you not go back to sleep? How do you not just kind of just ride on the privilege and the, the all of the benefits that come with, um, you know, just the privilege of having um, power like that? What do you do with the power? What do you do with the privilege? What do you do with the waking up? You know, the, the God, I have so many questions I want to ask you. Um, uh I've become very interested recently in the issue of bias, and I'm I'm writing a new book and uh, about uh, all the ways in which we are kind or unkind, and uh, I'm specifically looking at my own lack of kindness. Um, and I want to look at bias, and um, I'm th- I'll get to the question. This is just a long-winded way of asking a question, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm interested in my bias on lots of levels: racial bias, but also. Um, political ideological bias and so i've i've really made it my business of late to start listening to podcasts on all ends of the mm-hmm. political spectrum mm-hmm. uh and as part of that i've been i've been listening to conservatives who argue for reason i can't fully understand but this is, i'm still at the beginning of my research but they argue that white privilege is a myth I don't agree with that. Uh, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that white priv- that white privilege is real. Um, but w- what would you say to somebody who can't, mm. you know, who, who was arguing that white, for example, Jordan Peterson is a very popular mm. guy right now, and I haven't I haven't watched his YouTube speech on this, but uh, is a whole thing about white privilege not being real. Ben Shapiro has right. a similar argument. Right. What is? Uh, I wish I could. It's a little bit of an unfair question because I can't reproduce their arguments. Um, but what I don't would have you to, say? I don't have to know their arguments because it's a real common, you know, posture, a common thing that um, white people would say. I don't know a lot of people of color saying there's no such thing as white privilege, which is a piece of why this is so significant. And they would argue just to say their argument is, well, that's, you know, kind of a victim mentality, right. et cetera, et cetera. I understand. So for me, what I would um, I I have this um, rubric. And I and, and Rubik's cube. Uh, this Rubik's cube, and I talk about the racial awareness Rubik. You have it in your hand right I now. I have it in my hand right now. The first pair is around what we've talked about a little bit, which is individual, and then racial group identity. White people tend to focus at the level of individual. This is also where bias is at the individual level. So we all have biases. White people, all people have biases. We're all part of racial group identities. Some of us know that. Some of us don't. Some of us buy that. Some of us don't. Most people of color get that they're part of a racial group identity. 
most white people relate to themselves as individuals. This is crucial. The second pair is on dominant and subordinated group dynamics, races. White people are a dominant race. This is where privilege lives. It lives in the collective. It doesn't live at the individual level. Most white people I know would not describe themselves as privilege because we know there's only <laughs> this 1%. I mean, it's all, it's, it has a lot to do with how you're defining what privilege is. But privilege, white skin privilege, is this ability to um, uh, acknowledge that you're a race or not, uh, engage around race or not, and, and there's not really a lot of consequence around it. You can flip it off. You can turn it off. This is that's that in itself is white privilege, but it's mostly the denial that you're part of a collective that is on top, that is in a in a dominating. Uh, role in this society. So the only way to understand privilege is to understand group identity. The re reason um, that's not understood is because group identity has not been vetted among white people. There has not been a coming together to examine the his historic, pervasive inheritances of whiteness that exist as a, at the collective level. To me, that's the missing piece. So we can hang out at bias. We can hang out at individual opinions. That's all individual. It's still not the work at the racial group identity level. That's still an itch and a scratch for white people. And I think the question needs to be, why is it so hard to go there? We ha um, I want people to read the book, so we don't need to – I don't want to get you to say everything that's in the book. But can you just talk a little bit about the sort of the basic thesis and structure of, of uh, Mindful of Race? Yeah, it's it's kind of like this Rubik that I'm talking about, even though the Rubik uh, as a symbol uh, didn't come up until after I wrote the book. But the first um, part of the book is really uh, the belief. So what we're doing with this book is we're intersecting mindfulness meditation and meditation principles rooted in Buddhist teachings, but not not all of them. We're integrating this kind of technology, if you will with with um, recognizing and being able to understand racial distress and injury. So the first part of the book is really allowing people to really diagnose the issue, to diagnose their racial conditioning. And uh, it's really sharing these, these two pairs, first two pairs on the rubric of understanding yourself as an individual, understanding yourself as a racial group member, and... Um, and it also is talking about um, the dynamics of dominating and subordinated racial groups. There's a pattern. There's constellations we can begin to recognize. The book offers six hindrances to racial harmony that we um, can begin to notice both internally and externally in the world and to um, make some choices around and the, and so these are very important um you know ways of looking at how you have been conditioned around relating to race both yourself and to others so that's important that's not so much buddhist teachings that's teachings more from the work i've done in understanding uh race racism and power dynamics within my corporate and community work and then the second part of the work uh, the book is really speaking to meditation, specifically establishing a meditation practice where you can work with the distress 
that you feel internally in diving into this inquiry of race and racism, especially your own conditioning. And it offers a, a daily uh, meditation practice, how to, how to, how to develop a, a relationship with being at ease so that you can uh, bear witness to all of the rise and fall of craziness that happens as we start to pay attention to our mind when we start looking at race, the way we think, our habits of mind, the shame, the blame, the guilt, the the rage, all these things that come up in the mind, how the body collapses. Uh, so we're learning how to kind of be with this uh, this weather landscape, seasons of uh, internal experience inside the heart, body, and mind, and uh, learning how to forgive ourselves. We're learning about compassion. We're learning about kindness. We're learning about rain, recognizing, allowing, investigating, and nurturing the stress that moves through the heart and mind. So a lot of instruction on how to just be with the um, tension and um, uh, aversion and, uh, you know, the, the ways we distract ourselves is in part two of the book, which is meditation, which really is the intervention. I talk about racism as a heart disease and it's curable. It's curable through uh, to a large extent, the intervention of mindfulness that's supporting a certain inner atmosphere that allows us to respond more wisely to the to the distress in ourselves and in the world. And to see clearly first. And to see clearly and to see clearly. That's a really good point. And then the third part of the book is really speaking to a culture of care. And this is looking at our interdependence, the way we are part of um, something larger than ourselves. And uh, I have a lot of uh, fun in this section because I, I have a, a, a chapter on how to talk about what disturbs you, which is a, uh, some really pointed instructions where a good third of the instruction is about turning your attention inward to deal with your own distress. <laughs> and, um, and there's a section on um, equanimity, and not just equanimity that we learn about how to, the, again, that Buddha, the, the five-story golden Buddha, just the posture of sitting and staying in your seat with a sense of dignity and awareness and full-heartedness. Um, so I'm talking about not just our capacity to do that, that we gain some of the fruits from sitting meditation, but also our um, uh, there's a social equanimity that we can concern ourselves with the gifting, the extending of our practice to the communities that we live in and our families. Um, there's also a chapter in that section on artistry as cultural medicine and how uh, when we are involved in some kind of artistic expression that's natural for us, uh, we're really kind of um, being, uh, we find more aliveness and more creativity and uh, more joy in our lives when we have um, tumbled into the territory of creating and offering. I think if we weren't in the struggle of racial tension, we'd be creating, <laughs> we'd be dancing more, singing more, um, um, uh, be more light in our hearts around what's possible mm -hmm. because I think our energy would be a bit more purified and cleaned to 
to uh, leaning towards what's possible instead of what's wrong. Finally, let me just ask you, let me exercise my privilege as uh, the host of the show, uh-huh. gets the, that privilege <laughs> to sit and talk to you. Um, what, what, what advice would you give me as a white male who has enormous privilege, you know, mm-hmm. ec- economic privilege, I have a public platform. Mm-hmm. How, how could somebody with my um, – everything that I've been given – and in the position that I'm in, what what do you think somebody like me can do to be mm. part of the solution rather than part of the problem? That's a really good question, Dan. Uh, and I'm taking that to heart um, because sometimes um, the suggestions I have for people like this, you know, is, is not always <laughs> well received. Um, one hope that I Let have. Let me have it. I don't care. One hope that I have. Let me share a story uh, with a guy who um, – uh, I worked with that uh, was very senior in a bank, and um, the when the I think it was uh, the Florida hurricanes hit the ones just a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, he decided to take a crew on his own. You know, he hired a couple of trucks and took a crew of people down there to help clear out some communities because the mold and the environment had gotten so toxic for a lot of people. He ended up right in the heart of a black community and was in the, and with a woman who was a hoarder. And so there was all these papers and things stacked up to that she still couldn't get rid of, even though it was all damaged from the hurricane. And so he's counseling her and telling her. And meanwhile, the crew was um, at, with her consent, clearing things out. And in the middle of that, his boss called and said, you know, you're in violation of a company policy. You need to return the work right away. And he said to them, uh, when you can come down here and see what I'm seeing and um, not do what I'm doing, then we can have a conversation. And he stayed. And there wasn't any real repercussions from that choice that he made. But I was intrigued with him because he made a choice that was not so much his job, but it was a use of his privilege to to take care of something that he saw and he organized it and took care, took care of it. I think those are ways that people in positions, you know, they can they can push the bar on authority. I mean, it could have been the case where his job would have been at risk, but it really wasn't. And I think he maybe knew that to some extent. Maybe it would have been at risk if he wasn't white. Uh, it could very well have been a risk if he wasn't white. Um, but I don't know that. I'm, but I'm looking at what he did. I'm looking at what you can do in terms of, you know, being able to push that bar when people of color can't. You know, I also think that there's, um, uh, the, there's a collusion dynamic among white people that includes blindness, sameness, and silence. I think white people in positions like you're in can break the, you know, the collusive dynamics of not speaking about race, not confronting race, um, you know, turning a blind eye. You know, you can be the person that's just not having it, you know. And I, so that's another thing, you know, you can, you know, there, I mean, I, I'm sure you run into many situations where the, the, the thought arises and maybe it's not spoken, but it could be. It could be an interesting practice to see what it's like to 
to be different in a sea of white, powerful people, to raise these issues, to work with the itch and scratch of that, uh, to be different, because there is a white collective, it's just not claimed. And you, But you know what it is when you start doing things that are outside of it, you know. And I think a third thing uh, is to, um, uh, one of the things I really advocate in the book is, is forming racial affinity groups. I mean, what would it be like if you and one or two other white guys got together and committed to unpacking this um, thing called whiteness and really understanding it more intimately? What is, what is it? What is our conditioning? I mean, really keeping the focus inward on how we've been conditioned to not be membered and what is the consequence of that. Um, I, again, I think this is a life's work, and it's not about fixing as much as it's about understanding how we've been tightly conditioned to uh, stay in our lanes and and not um, question um, how we got here. There's so much. As I see, I'm going to be I'm gonna be careful about what I'm about to say, although the fact that I'm being careful says a lot because there's a lot of fear about talking about this exactly. issue. Exactly, yeah. But I just finished taking a class, online class, through the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, an organization I highly recommend, B-A-R-R-E, Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. Your name came up a lot, and it was an online course on race and the Dharma, taught by four teachers, two of whom have been on the show, um, Seven A. Selassie, um, I'm having a temporary... uh, uh, you have Brian Lesage? No, no, the uh, another female. Joanna Hardy. Joanna Hardy, yeah, who's been, Joanna was also Harper. a teacher on the mm-hmm. 10% Happier app. Mm-hmm. Um, she used to be named Joanna Harper, but now she's Joanna yeah, Hardy. Yes. Uh, and I found it to be incredibly interesting, the course. And we had to, we did do all these readings, and there was one, there was one reading on something called White Fragility that I had never actually heard of before, and it um, it was written by a white person. It talked about how the fact that you're you're familiar with this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I'm talking to our listeners mm-hmm. here. The that white people, when confronted with the things that you've been talking about, which is that we are a racial group uh, and that we do have mm-hmm. privilege, often we get super fragile around that. We 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 get angry or defensive, um, and I, that struck me as true. But I also got the sense that. It puts white people in a double bind because if I question anything, then I'm being fragile. If I say if, – if I do the uncomfortable thing of questioning uh, any statement that's being made when we start talking about um, the structures of racism in the United States, mm. then, well, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm just being defensive. Maybe I just won't look at the thing. And I fear that at times – so, so you have the you have the vast majority of people who don't want to talk about this at all, and that's that's the bigger problem. But even in the smaller groups where people are willing to address this stuff, I think there's another issue, which is the sometimes um, we white people get so cowed that we turn off our critical thinking a little bit, and mm-hmm. we um, uh, I think we. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, but I do mm. notice a dynamic where uh, I, I see among my fellow white people a sort of a, 
this mode of uh, just overwhelming contrition, which some of which is totally warranted, but uh, mm-hmm. but th- I don't know if it's fully thought through on some in some cases. And um, not th- what do you mean not thought through? Well, everything is just ex- so. For example, I noticed that when I would question. Uh, even in this paper, there's a seminal paper on white fragility, mm-hmm. and it basically uh, there are all these footnotes in it, and it looks like an mm-hmm. academic paper. Um, but I'm not sure that er- just because it's an academic paper that everything in there is true. I actually think white fragility, er- having read it, mm-hmm. I thought this is mostly spot on. Mm-hmm. But there were some parts of it I was like, nah, is that true? Yeah. I don't know if that's true. Yeah. And but am I am I allowed in this situation mm. to ask that question? Yeah, I see that's what you're the saying. dynamic I'm trying to get at. And, I and th- can you have real dialogue mm-hmm. if the white people in these situations are just trying not to get in trouble? Oh, that's yes. what I'm getting at. Exactly. This is a really important point that you're bringing up. Let me make. Let me say a couple of things. I, I'm familiar with um, Dr. Robin D'Angelo's work. Uh, she's one of the endorsers on my book. Um, I think she's doing some really important stuff here. We don't have to agree with all of it. Um, I think there's a difference between fragility and vulnerability. I think this this term she coined is really trying to get at something very specific about white people, which is, I think, uh, the fragility of um, uh, the way I understand it is this fragility that happens when you're not in control Things are not perfect, uh, and you're 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 feeling vulnerable. You know that that these things start happening. So I I think she's trying to really nail something that people of color have been talking about a long time, but wouldn't have quite called it fragility. We would call it you know privilege and a number of things. So she's getting into the whole emotional territory and the ways we hide out or can escape the exit doors that white people can take and do take right in the heart of the vulnerability of engagement around it. So that's one piece of it. But the piece I think that's so potent about what you're saying, Dan, is here's how I would say it. If I can't argue from from my experience as a white man with people of color, if I can't talk about what that's like for me, if I can't disagree without being then seen as blah, 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 or uh, of of not really being a, a good white ally or not being somebody that's really listening, then what is this? Do I just roll over and, and be run over, or do I get to have a voice? Uh, do I get to screw it up? Um, do I get to learn if I'm really, you know, can I learn without, um, can I learn in the ways that I learn? You know, and I think these are really important things. I think a real compliment See, I think the this is, but there's a few steps. The step of the step of white people doing their work together is crucial, because when when you start unpacking the way you're describing in this this way, well, I I don't see it that way, and or I have feelings, or I have this point of view. When that discussion starts unraveling or opening, and there hasn't been work around whiteness, then a lot of the um, unawareness that might go with that ends up having to be pointed out because there is a collective dynamic that's pervasive in the social realm. That's a piece of that you swim in. That is, that is also a piece of the mix. 
So when that's not incorporated into the dialogue, this sense of understanding whiteness and how it could be also engaged in the very thought that you're having, the expression that you're, you know, when that's not a piece of it, then you're speaking as an individual absent of rootedness and whiteness. And I think that's where it gets, it can go downhill. Mm -hmm. So it's real important that uh, this kind of collective piece is engaged and well understood because otherwise, you know, uh, it's having to be um, how it lives. It's never going to be perfect. Again, it's messy at best, Mm -hmm. but it is going to be recognized and respected when white people start bring your charge, bring your energy, but also bring your history, bring your group identity. You know, you're not just some individual with a point of view. You've been conditioned Mm -hmm. and whiteness. And and that's the piece that's missing, I feel, in our engagement. But I do think the challenge is important. I think it's a real compliment when white people, um, you know, are firm in, in what they're bringing, but they need to be educated and where they're coming from. A compliment how? A compliment that you're you respect. St- yeah, you're standing. This is my experience. I've done my work over here. I'm bringing this experience. I don't, I don't know if I agree with that or, you know, whatever it might be. I don't, I don't know what it is, but I think being willing to get in the, in the rough of it uh, and have a real dialogue with people of color is is it's not you know that's 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 my hope, but I think there's some work that white people need to do before rather, they bring to that. Rather than either hiding out, denying it, or uh, being condescending and pretending I agree with everything. That's you're right. right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's really um, patronizing. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's not what we want. There is a place of deep listening and hearing, which is part of the educational piece. Um. And you do have to know your buttons and when, when you're getting defensive because we all have um, defense patterns and ways that we protect ourselves. We have to know when that's plain. Every, people of color don't always know when that's plain, right? So it's messy, you know, but I think the piece that we all need to really bring to these discussions is a sense of ourselves as, as, as individuals and as racial group identity. She's got the Rubik's Cube again. I'm holding it. This is it. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> Before we go, let's do the plugging that I like to do. So give me a sense. Name every book you've written. Uh, tell us what you're, where you are on social media, what your website is. Ah. Give, give me everything. Okay. Well, uh, this is my second book. The first book was Healing Rage, Women Making Inner Peace Possible. This book is Mindful of Race, Transforming Racism from the Inside Out. Um, I've got a few uh, audio um, meditation books, uh, One Around Rage. Um, I have a DVD on cultural competency uh, that's available as a download and a bunch of stuff. I have these wristbands, Mindful of Race. Um, Where can we get them? Not there yet. All on my website. I have one which for is, you. Which is what's the which is uh, ruthking dot net. Okay. And uh, the book is there. the The products are there. The recordings are there. A number of recordings, guided meditations are there. Resource pages on racial awareness is there. Guidelines on forming a racial affinity group is there. Um, upcoming retreats and meditation retreats, mindful of race retreats. Um, a lot is there. 
the website is a good resource. Very grateful to you for coming mm-hmm. in here and Thank spending you. some time. Appreciate Dan, it. This is so great. Thank you. Thank you to your community. Appreciate it. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.